Well, those of you who were here a few weeks ago, you knew that uh, I began uh, about three, four weeks ago talking about a three-headed beast, a three-headed monster that can so easily sink its teeth into us. And that three-headed beast is man-made religion, the beast of man-made religion. For, for several weeks, we've been working through this series on man-made religion, a series in which we've explored the devices and exposed the dangers inherent with the religious approaches that arise from our human hearts, man-made religion. And in this series, we've been guided by warnings from the Apostle Paul. And we find these warnings in the New Testament book of Colossians. So go ahead and turn over there to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2. Now, these warnings that we've been looking at, they were given by the Apostle Paul to new Christians in a a young church, a newly planted church in the ancient city of Colossae. And Paul's initial warning, probably the key and central warning in this entire letter, is found in verse 8 of chapter 2. Look at at what Paul writes to these young Christians. He says, verse 8, chapter 2, See to it that no one does what? Takes you captive. That's the key warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to, not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. You see, that was the danger, and it still is the danger for the church. The danger is that we would find ourselves carried away, taken captive by humanistic, worldly philosophies instead of living by faith alone in Christ alone. The danger is that we would look to those things, the wisdom and ways of this world, instead of looking to the sufficiency of our Savior. That was a danger back then, and guess what, brothers and sisters? It continues to be a danger for the church today. We will look to those things, the wisdom and ways of this world, instead of looking to the sufficiency of our Savior. But here in Colossians, after Paul gives that that key warning, that central warning, he begins to expose the, the specific ways, the specific philosophies that were trying to captivate the Colossians. And we find those specific ways fleshed out starting in verse 16 of chapter 2 and running down through the end of the chapter, running down through verse 23. And there in those eight verses, Paul gets very specific in his warnings. He addresses in detail what was attacking this young church. And what was attacking them was, was teaching was humanistic, worldly ideas, humanistic, worldly teaching that that was being presented to them in the garb of religion. So it was being presented to them, this worldly, humanistic teaching in the garb of religion. You see, they were under attack, that church, that young church with these new Christians, they were under attack from man-made religion. That's what verses 16 to 23 make very clear. But like I said, (laughs) this man-made religion that was attacking them, it was a three-headed beast. The church was under attack from religious people with their religious ideas, but these religious people weren't all of the same mind. They they weren't all of the same approach. There were actually three different approaches, three different religious ideas that were being foisted upon the Colossians. First, there were some who who were pushing a high view of rituals. They they were trying to get the Colossians to to buy into this idea. They're trying to sell the Colossians on this idea that that rituals and ceremonies, just the right rituals and ceremonies, were needed in order to be truly pleasing to God. You needed just the right rituals, just the right ceremonies in order to be truly pleasing to God. But what were just the right rituals and ceremonies? Well, look at verse 16. Paul says to the Colossians, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? A Sabbath. 
You see, there were some who were trying to tell, tell the Colossians on, on this approach that as, as a Christian, you still needed to embrace the Old Testament ceremonial diet and the Old Testament ceremonial calendar. Those were what these folks viewed as just the right relig- just the right rituals and just the right ceremonies. And they were telling these, these Christians, that as a Christian, you need to go back and te- keep all these Old Testament ceremonies, all these Old Testament rituals. You need to do that if you want to be truly spiritual. If you want to be truly pleasing to God. But here's the thing. Such an approach, such a belief that Christians need to go back and put themselves under all these, under, under all these Old Testament ceremonies and rituals, such a belief, such a practice is not from God. It's not from God. It's simply man-made religion. It's simply, as we talked about when we first launched this study, it's simply empty ritualism. It's empty rituals, and Paul exposes that. Look at verse 17. Paul says, these, and he's talking about all those Old Testament rituals, are what? A shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. In other words, now that Christ has come, those Old Testament rituals have been exposed for what they were. And what were they? Simply shadows. They were simply signposts pointing to who? Pointing to Christ. They are not the substance. Christ is. And now, guess what? We have him, right? Now we have Christ. We have the substance. We have the reality. So to go back to all the signposts, to go back to chasing shadows, is to turn away from the substance. It's to turn away from Christ. You're going after the shadows when you have the real deal. It's to turn away from Christ, and it's to put your hope then in rituals. It's to put your hope in empty ritualism. And the sad reality is that too often that is the approach of the religious. That is the approach of the religious. They come up with these elaborate ceremonies, these elaborate rituals, things that need to be repeated regularly and with precision and multiple times a day. But those rituals are empty. They're devoid of substance. Let me ask this question. What does it really profit a Muslim to pray daily, multiple times a day, facing Mecca? What does it really profit them? What does it profit a Buddhist to spend hours daily in meditation? What does it profit, I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but what does it profit a Roman Catholic to pray the rosary to say their Hail Marys when in reality they are praying to one who is not our mediator? The Bible makes it very clear. For there is one mediator between God and men. And is it Mary? No. No. Paul says he makes it clear. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So to turn to rituals that are devoid of Christ is to embrace man-made religion. It's to embrace man-made religion. It's to find your hope in the shadows instead of in the substance. And that's what was going on there in Colossae. That was the first head of this beast, empty ritualism. That's what was biting at the heels of these new Christians in Colossae. But that's not all that was biting at their heels. Uh, Down in verses 18 and 19, we see that there were some in this church who who weren't pushing ritual as much as they were pushing experience. There were some who, okay, yeah, rituals, that's, that's their thing. But we're all about experience. They were experience pushers. And they were trying to sell the Colossians on the idea that you needed experiences. You needed religious, mystical experiences in order to attain growth in your Christian life. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. He warns them. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. 
puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. You see, there were those in Colossae who were promoting angel worship, they were promoting angelic visions, and these were to be pursued, they were to be brought on by severe treatment to the body. That's, that's asceticism, that's what the text is talking about there. It was intense physical self-denial. So long periods of fasting or exposing yourself to the elements with the purpose of bringing on then these visions or showing yourself worthy to the angels as part of your worship of the angels. And so these new Christians were being, were being encouraged to embrace that. Okay, you, you need to embrace this intense self-denial in order to have these experiences, these religious mystical experiences like visions and like interactions with angels. And you need to do that because that's how you're really going to grow. When you do those things, then you've really arrived. That's what they were being told. That's the real key to growth. But Paul says just the opposite is true. Actually, no growth comes from these mystical extra-biblical, experiential pursuits. And the reason why is because they have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with Christ. Look at verse 19. Paul explains that those who pursue such mystical, extra-biblical, and by extra-biblical, we're talking about replacing our authority outside of the scriptures. So it's these visions, these angelic experiences, that was the source of authority. And that's what was being pushed there. But those who pursue such things, such mystical, extra-biblical experiences are really, verse 18, they're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. It's just appealing to the flesh. And verse 19, they're not holding fast to who? The head. Who's the head? Christ. They're not holding fast to Christ. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, does what? The whole body grows. As we hold fast to Christ, the whole body grows. It grows with a growth that is from God. You see, to get all caught up in pursuing mystical, extra-biblical experiences is to stop holding fast to Christ, the head, and you don't grow that way. You don't grow that way. It's divorcing yourself, just like those who are pursuing empty ritualism. It's divorcing yourself from the substance. It's like being part of a body, but trying to function without a head. How's that going to work? It's not. You won't grow that way. Healthy bodies are not headless bodies. That's a no-brainer, right? There's my pun for this morning. But, but that's what was being pushed by these, these religious mystics. They, they were pushing no-brainer growth. They were pushing headless growth. They were pushing experience instead of Christ. Experience instead of Christ. But what we need to understand is that's just man-made religion. That's just man-made religion. That's just fleshly sensationalism. That's another way our humanistic religious ideas, oh, I need these experiences. That's another way our humanistic worldly ideas will pull us away from resting in Christ alone. Pull us away. So that's what we've seen thus far in this series. Those are the warnings that we've looked at already from the Apostle Paul. Those are the first two heads of this beast of man-made religion. Empty ritualism and fleshly sensationalism. But this morning, we come to the third and final head of this beast. We come to the third way that these Colossians were under attack. And the third way in which, the third avenue in which man-made religion was trying to take hold of those in this young church was through rules. Rules. Righteousness and spiritual victory through rules. Otherwise known as legalism. 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 Futile legalism. That's the third head of this beast. 
empty ritualism, fleshly sensationalism, and futile legalism. And what you need to understand, what I'm going to work to show you this morning, is that at its heart, you need to understand this about legalism, at its heart, legalism is human effort driven by worldly wisdom aimed at spiritual transformation. That's what legalism is. It's human effort driven by worldly wisdom aimed at producing spiritual transformation. And such approach, although it may look spiritual, although it may look godly because of how rigorous it is, because of all the bad things that it says no to, such an approach, human effort driven by worldly wisdom aimed at producing spiritual transformation is really, mark this down, is really anti-Christ. It's anti-Christ because such an approach pulls us away from Christ. It pulls us away from Christ. And that's exactly what was happening there in Colossae. Look at Paul's words, starting there in verse 20. He asked them, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of what? What does it say? They are of zero. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here, here Paul shows us not only the legalism that was invading this church, but why it's both futile and dangerous. Here, here we see that man-made religion, specifically legalism, looks to external worldly devices to produce change instead of looking to the reality of our spiritual transformation through faith in Christ. See the difference? That's why legalism is so futile and so dangerous. It looks to external worldly devices to produce change instead of looking to the reality of our spiritual transformation through faith in Christ. And that's really what legalism is all about. Again, it's about human effort driven by worldly wisdom aimed at producing spiritual transformation. It's a call to rest in rule-keeping. It's a call to rest in rule-keeping instead of resting in the reality of who we are in Christ. Very important difference. Resting in rule-keeping instead of resting in the reality of who we are in Christ. And so to pry the third head of this beast from off of the ankles of the Colossians, Paul starts with that. He starts with calling the Colossians to focus on the reality of who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ. And to do this, he points them back to a moment of fundamental change. He asks them, as it were, don't you realize what happened to you? Don't you realize what happened to you? Look at Paul's opening question there in verse 20. What does he open with? If with Christ you what? Yeah, if with Christ you died. He's drawing their attention to a fundamental change that happened with them when they put their faith in Christ. If with Christ you died. Now we're going to unpack that fundamental change, but before we do, let me take a moment and point out the change in Paul's tone here. Up to this point, uh, Paul has been using warnings, uh, imperative warnings, to address the false teaching in this young church. Look back at verse 16. There he said, Let no one pass judgment on you. That's a warning in the form of a command. It's an imperative. And then verse 18, he does it again. Let no one disqualify you. Another imperative warning. So he's been giving them commands of warning. Don't let people do this to you. But in verse 20, here in verse 20, he changes his approach. Instead of an imperative warning, he raises a question. 
But what I want you to understand is this isn't simply a question. This question is worded in such a way that you can feel, you can feel some of Paul's frustration. Paul is voicing his frustration. Again, he asks them, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, what's the next word? Why? There's the frustration. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? In other words, why are you submitting to this legalistic dogma when you've already experienced transformation through Christ? That's what Paul's saying to them. That's the question he's raising. It's a question that is aimed at focusing their attention on who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ. It is focused on showing the incompatibility of that truth, who they are in Christ, with the way that they're currently living. It's showing them the incompatibility of this. Okay, this is who you are, but this is how you're living. You see, Paul's question to the Colossians is really an affirmation of truth about the Colossians. He's affirming truth about the Colossians. And here's what I mean by that. When Paul asks, if with Christ you died, he's not raising a question to which there's some doubt. Okay, so like, it's garbage day at your house, and you say to your spouse, did you put the garbage cans out? Are they out there on the curb? You know, there's some doubt, right? I didn't put them out. Did you put them out? Raising a question where there's, where there's some doubt. That's not what's going on here. He's not raising a question to which the answer is in doubt. He is using a literary device, a Greek conditional clause, which often functioned like a rhetorical question. It was a way of saying, if this is true, and it is, I don't need you to answer, it is, then why are you doing that? Paul is saying, if with Christ you died, and you have, then why are you living like you didn't? Make sense? Make sense? Paul's asking this forceful question to communicate his frustration with the Colossians and this legalism that they're buying into. And he's frustrated because their actions, their embracing of these legalistic rules are revealing an ignorance. It's revealing an ignorance about a fundamental change that has happened to them through their faith in Christ. The way they're living is revealing an ignorance about a fundamental change that has happened to them through faith in Christ. You, th- you see, through faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. And-, and here, Paul emphasizes that through that union, we actually died with Christ. That's a fundamental change, and that's a pretty fundamental change, right? Death, we'd say that's, that's kind of high up there as far as fundamental changes. So you, through union with Christ, through faith in Christ, you're united with Christ, and through that union, you died with Christ. Died with Christ. We died with Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that when you put your faith in Christ, your heart, it stopped beating? Lungs stop working? Brain stop functioning? Now, that's not the kind of death that Paul is talking about. And here's the thing. Anyone who has experienced the death of a loved one, they're going to tell you that there is more to death than what happens to a person physically. There's more to death than what happens to a person physically. The reality of death, and actually the pain of death, is in the separation that it brings, right? In the separation. There's a fundamental change that happens when a person dies. That person is not affected by those things which once affected them. They're not connected to the things to which they were once connected. The world, the sphere in which they once lived, it's past. They aren't part of that world anymore. That is the reality of death. And that's what Paul is communicating through this metaphor of death. 
He is using death as a metaphor to communicate a fundamental change that happens when we put our faith in Christ. The things which once affected us don't affect us the same way anymore. Don't affect us the same way anymore. Those things to which we were once connected to, we aren't connected to the same way anymore. The sphere in which we once lived, we don't live in that sphere anymore. That's what happened to us through faith in Christ. There's been a fundamental relational change, a separation. And Paul goes on to explain that separation, that fundamental change. He explains it as death. Look at verse 20. Death to the elemental spirits of the world. There's been a separation from those things. But what are those things that he's talking about here? That, that phrase, the elemental spirits of the world, is a, is a rather challenging phrase to translate and to interpret. But the good news is we've already come across that phrase in this letter. Now, you remember, Paul used that same phrase back in verse 8 of chapter 2. There, and I already read it this morning, but let me read it again. There, Paul gives this warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And that's the same exact phrase that Paul's using here. In the original language, is actually the same words. The stoikeia of the cosmos. The elements of the universe or the elements of the world. But what makes that particular phrase so difficult to translate, why some of your translations say the elemental principles of this world or the basic principles of the universe or as the ESV does, the elemental spirits of the world, what makes it so difficult is that first word that I mentioned, that word stoikeia. Now, that particular Greek term, it originally meant the ABCs, the the basics of the alphabet. But over time, as words do, it kind of evolved, it changed. And it began to be used of the foundational principles of the universe, the foundational elements of the world, the ABCs of the world. But in an ancient worldview, material realities were often associated with spiritual forces. And that's really still the case in some places in the world today. Material realities are associated with spiritual forces. So what happened with this word is over time, it began to be used of spiritual beings in work in the universe. That's why some English translations like the ESV bring this phrase across as the elemental spirits. But the problem with that translation of this word stoikeia, I pointed this out when we went back through verse 8, is that using this term to refer to spiritual beings... Uh, that didn't become popular in the culture actually until after the time of the Apostle Paul. That wasn't the contemporary usage of this term. In Paul's day, this term was still very much used to describe the rudimentary or the basics, the ABCs. And that's the way that I think that Paul is using this term in Colossae. And some of the other translations agree with me on that, like the New American Standard and the NIV. That's the way they translate it. And see, I think Paul here is, he is using this term to speak almost in a condescending way of the rudimentary ways of this world. He's talking about the base ideas of this world. It's basic, worldly, ABC philosophy. It's fundamental, rudimentary approach to life. He's talking about an approach to life in ABCs that is grounded in man's wisdom and in man's fallen desires. It's grounded in human wisdom and human fallen desires. That's the ABCs of this world. You trust in your wisdom and you follow your desires. But Paul says, as a Christian, you died to that. You died to that. There was a death through faith to that. You see, through faith in Christ, we died to the world's ways. And what I mean by that is we died to the world's answers for life. Amen? 
We died to those things. We died to the world's offers of hope and salvation through human wisdom and human effort. We died to the world's wisdom of, of here's how to please God, here's how to live a holy life. We died to those things. We died to all of that. There was a fundamental change that happened when we turned to Christ. Let me explain, so I want to make sure you understand this. In that first moment of faith, we declared that we were turning from the world's answers, amen? amen. We, we declared, we're to, we have found those empty, useless, vain, they're not helpful, I'm not finding any hope there. We turned from those things and we turned where? To Christ. We turned to finding our hope, our meaning, our purpose, our joy in Christ. In that moment of faith, we turned from those things and we turned in true hope Turn to true hope, the hope from God that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that moment, we turn from the world's dogma. Here's how you find joy. Here's how you find meaning. Here's how you please God. We turn from those things and embrace the doctrine of Christ as our only hope, Christ as our Savior. So we died with Christ, through our union with Christ, to this world's wisdom, to its ABCs, to how you live. And so Paul asked the Colossians, if that's what happened... And it is, why are you back to living by them? Why are you back to living by them? Why are you living like that moment didn't happen? That's what he means here in the text when he says, why as if you were still alive in the world? You see, Paul isn't saying that somehow we stop to exist. You know, we cease to exist. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he means when he says, as if you were still alive in the world. I found this helpful. This is commentator Douglas Samu. He says, clearly Paul does not mean to imply that believers do not continue to live in the world, whether we define the world as the physical universe or as the fallen and sin-prone state of existence, his point, Moo writes, is rather, Paul's point, is rather that believers no longer count the world as their true home, amen, or as the place that dictates who they are or how they are to live. In other words, Paul's talking here not about existence, not that we have ceased to exist, but he's talking about a change in our orientation, not about existence, but about a change in our orientation. You see, as Christians, we still, we still exist in the world, right? We still exist and we still live in it. We get up every morning and we go to our jobs or we go to school. We interact with our neighbors. We, we interact with people in the community. We watch TV. We read articles, whether those are on the internet or in those, what are those other things called? Newspapers? Yeah, those things. We listen to the radio. When we do all that kind of stuff, we are surrounded by those who function by the rudimentary ways of this world. They are living by human wisdom and they're chasing after fallen human desires. That's what we're surrounded by 24-7. But when we came to Christ, we died to having our life oriented towards those things, towards the way of this world. Do you understand what I'm saying here? You understand Paul's point? You see, they are no longer, the ways of this world, they're no longer to define us. They're no longer to give us our hope or our meaning. We are, we are to work faithfully at our jobs. We are to lovingly engage our neighbors. We are to study hard in school. But we aren't pursuing those things from the same place we did before we came to Christ. Our orientation has changed. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And what that means is that our hope isn't found in the things of this world. The rudimentary ways of this world are not to dictate how we live or what we love 
or where we find our joy. And most pertinent to Paul's discussion here, the rudimentary ways of this world are not to guide or to define how we pursue spiritual transformation. That's what Paul's getting at here. The rudimentary ways of this world, the ABC philosophy of this world, that's not to guide or to define how we pursue spiritual transformation. You see, that's what was going on in Colossae. They were pursuing spiritual transformation through worldly wisdom and human ability. That's the ABCs of this world. They were pursuing spiritual transformation through human wisdom and human, through worldly wisdom and human ability. They were using the, the basics, the ABCs of this world, to try to attain victory over sin. That was the orientation of their efforts. And again, that's the heart of legalism. That's the heart of legalism. Legalism is human effort driven by worldly wisdom aimed at producing spiritual transformation. And that was what was going on in Colossae. They were submitting to worldly dogma about how to change. Dogma. That's another way of saying a set of principles laid down by as an authority as indisputably true. Here's our dogma. You can't argue with this. Dogma. And that's another way to translate Paul's term at the end of verse 20. That word regulations. You see, he's asking the Colossians, why are you submitting to their dogma? Why are you submitting to their dogma? Why are you submitting to their worldly principles that they are putting forth as the authority? You can't question with this. This is the way things work. Why are you submitting to that? But, but what were they submitting to? What was their dogma? What were these principles? What was their worldly approach to spiritual transformation? Well, it was pretty much, don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do. I mean, that's, that wasn't really it. But that's the idea. And what I mean by that, it was all focused on the external. You ever heard that one before? Don't smoke or chew or go with the girls that do? All right. Anyways, it's all focused on the external, and that's what was going on there in Colossae. It was all focused on the external. Look at the list. Look at verse 21. Paul asks, why do you submit to regulations? Why do you submit to this dogma? Here it is. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, were those the actual rules that these false teachers were putting out? Um, Most scholars think, no, those weren't the actual rules. The actual rules were probably far more specific than that. But the uh, rules given here are most likely Paul's sarcastic summary of their dogma. It's as though Paul is parodying their rules. Oh, yeah, their rules, you know, hands off that. Don't taste this. Don't even touch it. You know, got to look this way. You got to dress this way. You know, that, that kind of idea. Like he's making a joke out of the rules that they're foisting upon the Colossians. And in so doing, he's showing the foolishness of this rule. He is exposing not simply the form of this dogma, that it's these silly rules. He's exposing the focus of their dogma. You see, all of these rules are focused on external, temporal things. They are focused on pursuing spiritual transformation through controlling the external and the temporal. And by temporal, temporal, I mean things that have no eternal value. They're only temporary That's what these false teachers, that's what these legalists were focused upon. You're just focused on these things that are are nothing. They're external things. They're temporal things. They have no eternal significance. And Paul points out the foolishness of this. He says, look at verse 22. He says that these are things that all, what? Perish as they are used. They're temporary. They have no eternal significance. What you touch or what you eat is not the key issue. 
Let me say that again to make sure we're clear. What you touch or what you eat is not the key issue. It's not the heart of true spirituality. It is not the answer to true spiritual change. It's just something that perishes with use. It holds no eternal significance. That's Paul's point. And as Paul makes this point, talking about these things that perish with use, I was wondering if Paul was thinking of the words of Jesus on this topic now. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, so most likely he is. But I was, thinking, I was wondering if Paul was thinking of a specific occasion when Jesus taught on this. Now, you remember in Jesus' day, a lot of the religious people were focused on the externals, right? They were focused on the external. They had all kinds of rules focused on the externals. They had rules about what you touched. They had rules about what you ate. They had rules about how you washed your hands before you ate. They made a religious practice out of how you wash your hands. And they thought, they thought that, I shouldn't laugh at this because this is really, really where they were, they thought that spiritual transformation was somehow wrapped up in such practices. You wash your hands this way, it makes you spiritual. You don't wash your hands this way, you're not. But Jesus called them on their foolishness. Take your Bibles and turn over for a moment to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. And for those of you who've been at Redemption for a while, your Bible should just fall open to the Gospel of Mark, because we did spend, I don't know, a short time in that book. <laughs> but, but this is the passage I, I was thinking about. I wonder if Paul had this in mind when he wrote this section of Colossians, and maybe he wasn't thinking Mark chapter 7, but, but this teaching received from Jesus. Mark chapter 7 And here in chapter 7, we find some of the Pharisees, some of the scribes, some of the pious religious folks of Jesus' day, and they're condemning people. They like to do that. And they're condemning the disciples of Jesus. And they're condemning the disciples of Jesus for not properly washing their hands. And their condemnation towards Jesus' disciples for not properly washing their hands, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, fear of their hands being dirty and bacteria, and they put that in their mouth, and they might get sick. That's not what it's about at all. It was a fear of religious defilement. These religious people thought that spirituality was linked, that it was affected by the external, what you handle, what you taste, what you touch. So they condemned Jesus' disciples for not following the proper religious rules about washing your hands. But look at Jesus' response. First there in verse 6, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, calls them all a bunch of hypocrites. And I say gentle Jesus, meek and mild, because often we want to see, picture Jesus, you know, he's just serving soft-serve messages, you know what I'm saying? But he doesn't, right? Man, he's blunt sometimes, he's forceful, and he says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And then in verse 8, he exposes the root of their hypocrisy. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In other words, you are presenting yourself as spiritual, but really you've turned your back on God, and you're just embracing human wisdom and human approach and human tradition. And then starting in verse 14, he explains what's so fundamentally wrong with their thinking. And this is, this is where I think Jesus' teaching here really connects with the issues in our text. We read verse 14. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and again said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing, what? Outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, the issue is not external, it's where? Internal. It's internal. Now, when Jesus first shared this, his disciples struggled to understand it. Look at verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Hey, Jesus, what you were just talking about, what, what in the world was that about? And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters where? Not his heart, but what? His stomach and is expelled. Okay, I love how Jesus is just so blunt. Come on, guys, think this through. You're eating it. It's not going into your heart. It's just passing through you. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, and this is the key, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, and then what's the next phrase there? Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within. From where? From the heart. And they defile a person. Do you see the issue? Do you see the source of the problem? Is it our environment? Is it what we handle, what we taste, what we touch? Is it the temporary things that all perish as they are used? Is that the problem? Is that what needs to be controlled? No. No, the issue is the heart. The issue is our hearts, our fallen, sinful, rebellious, fleshly hearts. And here's the thing. I want you to know this. No amount of rules are going to change the heart. No amount of rules are going to change our hearts. Rules just expose the hearts. So I want to make sure, moms and dads, you don't misunderstand this this morning. I'm not saying no rules, anarchy everywhere. But I'm reminding you of the purpose in rules. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? Rules expose the heart. So have rules in your homes, moms and dads, but realize rules aren't changing the heart. Okay? They're just exposing the heart. So through the gospel, the heart can be dealt with. Okay? So no amount of rules are going to change the heart. Rules just expose the heart. They don't change it. Rules will never, never, let me say this again, (laughs) never change a person's heart. And that's the reality that this world misses. That's the reality that this world misses. The wisdom of this world, its ABCs, is to change a person to produce transformation by somehow controlling their environment, right? We got to control the environment. We use rules to produce change. And this is so, so prevalent in man-made religion. This is the heart, really, of so many religions around the world. People come up with list after list after list after list of rules. And they think that by obedience to those rules, that somehow things are going to change. But they're missing reality. They're missing the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is the human heart. And they're missing it because they're so focused on the externals. They're so focused on the externals. Go back now. To Colossians chapter 2. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. Look at the text here. Again, Paul asks the question, verse 20. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, still living by that orientation, do you submit to regulations? Do you submit to this dogma? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. You're so focused on the externals, he's saying. And then he says this. Those things, they are the, these rules are according to human precepts and teachings. You see, that's the source of this dogma. I've seen the form, the silly rules. I've seen the, the focus all about the externals. Now look here at the source. Do these commands come from God? No. These rules are simply human commandments and human teachings. And, and that's what's being pushed upon the Colossians. What's being pushed upon, here's this whole list of man-made rules that you need to follow. And they are simply trying to use man's ways, not God's ways, 
to produce change. And here's the thing. Man's ways are never, let's deal with the heart. (laughs) That's never man's ways. Let's produce spiritual change in the heart. And that's not man's ways because man can't do that. Man can't do that. We can't change the hearts. Amen? Some of you moms and dads wish you could. (laughs) I just like to climb right in there and change the heart. And I'll tell you, just being real blunt with you this morning, sometimes as a pastor, I wish I had that ability. I wish I could just change that heart. That's not our ability. We don't have that ability. So what do we do instead? We get frustrated and we try to change the environment. Let's control everything. We, We try to make a bunch of rules that make us look spiritual, act spiritual. You dress this way. You have this specific translation. You know, you do all these things. We try to change this environment so that we can act spiritual, so that we can look spiritual. But here's the reality. We're just, in reality, we're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's what we're doing. And that's, that's the point that Paul makes next. Paul exposes the futility of their dogma. Look at verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, have an appearance, appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of what? And you want to go, oh, Paul, I've worked so hard at these rules. Can't I just have a little bit of value in those? And he says what? They are zip, zero, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We're just rearranging the deck chairs. We're just rearranging the deck chairs. Paul says, it it looks good to the undiscerning eye. There's certainly an appearance of wisdom. It looks like, well, that person's really focused on change and transformation and victory over sin. It looks religious. It looks like there's, there's severity. There's intense, you know, um, trying to curtail the desires of the body, this asceticism. And, and that's often what you see. People look at a legalistic person. They say, wow, look how committed they are. And often they are. They are zealously committed to keeping their rules. But the reality is that commitment is getting them nowhere. That commitment is getting them nowhere. Paul says there's an appearance. It looks this way. But then there's a reality. And the reality is that their list of man-made rules, their pursuits of the external to try to control the internal, the heart, it's worthless. It's worthless. And man, some people who are in those religions or who are pursuing legalism it's heartbreaking for them to realize how worthless it is because they are working so hard. But it's worthless. Paul says they, these rules, are of no value. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't ultimately deal with the flesh because they don't ultimately deal with the heart. They don't ultimately deal with the flesh because they don't ultimately deal with the heart. They don't deal with the problem down deep inside of us, that part of us that wants to go our own way and do our own things and trust our own wisdom. And because they don't deal with that part, they prove useless. They prove futile. But here's the thing. Anyone who's been around a truly legalistic group, and I know some of you probably have, you know that the rules don't often just prove useless but they also often prove dangerous. Any of those of you who've been around a really legalistic group, you know it's not just about futility, it's also about the danger. First, it's dangerous because they're offering a false hope. You know, here, chase these things, go after these things, and you're going to change. So they're offering a false hope. But second, they prove dangerous because often those rules fuel the flesh. Those rules fuel the flesh. You see, 
Legalism, it does not only not stop the flesh, it often feeds it. It often feeds it. Here's what I mean. Through the pursuit of spirituality through rule keeping, it often leads to a sense of pride. Hey, look at all the rules that I've kept. A sense of superiority. Hey, look at my list. Look how good I am at my list. And a sense of condemnation towards other people. Oh, there's a, you're not keeping the list. You know what I mean? Feeds the flesh. Produces pride, the sense of superiority, and this condemnation towards other people. If you want to see a good example of this, go, just go back to the Gospels and look at the Pharisees. Look at the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisee praying? Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax gatherer, this publican. Look at my list. That guy's not keeping the list. You know, it feeds the flesh. It feeds it. Their rules weren't restraining the flesh. The rules were feeding the flesh. But that is the reality of man-made religion. That's the reality of it. That's the reality of legalism. It is futile and it is dangerous. It doesn't deal with the flesh. Instead, it only feeds it. But here's the big question for this morning. (laughs) If rules aren't the answer to spiritual transformation, if a list of external commands can't change our heart, what is the answer? What should we pursue? Here, Paul, here's our question for you. What is the answer to their dogma? Ready for this? The answer is what the entire book of Colossians is all about. The answer is Christ. You say, Ryan, can be that simple? Yes. <laughs> the answer is Christ. Are you ready for this? Transformation, true spiritual transformation, a transformed heart only comes through Christ. Through the sovereign grace of Christ. It is only as Christ, through his grace, grants the ministry of the Holy Spirit who transforms the heart. Do you have any control over that? No. And neither do I. I wish I did. But it only comes through Christ. Through Christ transforming the heart. Transformation comes when we come to the end of ourselves. When we come to the end of looking to our wisdom and our abilities. For those things. When we stop looking to those things to change. And here's the thing, realizing that, coming to the end of yourself, that's not something you can work up on your own. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see how empty and futile the hope of this world is. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Paul, here's what I want you to understand. Paul says, guys, you've already experienced that. You've already experienced that. If with Christ you died, and you have. So if with Christ you died to the ABCs of this world, to living by that that hope and human effort, it's already happened. The Holy Spirit has already changed your heart. You've already experienced that if you are a Christian. So this is already true of you. So then what? Learn to live in it. (laughs) Learn to live in that transformation. That's how victory over sin is going to come. It comes through continued surrender to Christ. Continued surrender to Christ. It comes through desperation for the truth of Christ. The Holy Spirit brings you that spot of going, man, the ways of this world are so empty. And the Spirit, through the word of God, as we're in it, continues to bring us that place. So this desperation for the truth of Christ. I've seen the emptiness of the ways of this world. I just want your truth. It comes from that, that desperation for the truth of Christ, that desperation for the strength of Christ. I know how weak I am. You can give me a list of rules. Guess what? I'm going to fail and fail and fail and fail in my own effort and ability. 
It comes from that desperation for the strength of Christ, that desperation for the joy of Christ. It comes from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ and letting the Spirit grow in us such a love for God that sin loses its luster. You're struggling with sin? Guess what? You can go push further into the glory of God in the face of Christ. Learn the glorious things that you have in Christ. And the more you behold that, guess what? Sin can't compete. I can't hold a candle to those things. But our problem is we got our list of rules. We're trying to keep those things. We've taken our eyes off of who? Off of Christ. Off of Christ. We often struggle with sin because we're not pushing enough into Christ. Into the greatness and the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, true change, brothers and sisters, comes from the inside out. Not from the outside in. That's the approach of legalism, right? We're going to control the environment. That's going to change the heart. True change comes from the inside out. It doesn't come from a list of rules we keep in our own wisdom and ability. It comes from walking in the Spirit and joyfully allowing the Spirit to take what He is producing on the inside, that growing love for Christ, that growing desire for the glory of God, that hatred towards sin, to take what He is producing on the inside and bring it outward. And as he grows in us, a love for God, a love for the ways of God, a delight in Christ, a confidence in our salvation, it will produce in us love, joy, peace, patience, kind of sounded familiar, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. It will produce a changed life. It starts from the inside And that's something that legalism will never produce. Legalism will never produce that. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, as I did in the opening message of this study, check your ankles. Check your ankles. Does legalism have a hold on you? Are you trying to use human effort driven by worldliness? I'm going to control my environment through all of these rules. Are you trying to use human effort driven by worldly wisdom to produce spiritual transformation? Are you looking to the external, to worldly devices to produce change, instead of looking to the reality of our spiritual transformation that happened through faith in Christ? And I'll just put it this way. Are you resting in rule keeping, or are you resting in the reality of who we are in Christ? There's the options. Are you resting in rule keeping? Oh, that's where my confidence is. Or are you resting in the reality of who you are in Christ? If you're resting in rule keeping, let me encourage you to check your ankles. Because you need to realize that you've fallen into the trap of legalism. You've fallen into the trap of man-made religion, of living by faith in rules instead of by faith alone in Christ alone. But just like those who found themselves in the grip of empty ritualism, which we talked about the first Sunday, and fleshly sensationalism, which we talked about the second Sunday, just like those who find themselves in the grip of those things, there's hope. And where's the hope to be found? It's to be found in Christ. It's to be found in the substance. So delight in the fundamental change that has happened to you through faith in Christ. The heart change. That by God's sovereign grace, not because you deserved it, not because you work harder than the rest, but because God in his sovereign grace and mercy changed your heart. Delight in that heart change. And then pursue living out of that, living from the inside out every day. Learn to delight every day in Christ. Delight every day in your salvation. Learn to, to 
rejoice in the glory of who Christ is, of who our Father is, of the salvation that we've been given, and and allow the Spirit to use those tools to rob sin of its luster and grow in you a joyful obedience that flows from a transformed heart. Simply put, stop falling prey to man-made religion. Stop chasing the shadow. Stop Stop settling for a list of rules when you have Christ. When you have Christ. Keep holding fast by faith to Christ. Keep clinging to the one who is the substance. And we are going to encourage our faith this morning. We're going to encourage one another to cling to Christ as we close our service this morning by gathering together around the Lord's table. And as I've said in the past, brothers and sisters, this is where we feed our hearts. This is where we remind ourselves, guess what? It's not about you and your effort. You didn't earn your salvation. Christ came, was take the bread, reminded Christ came and he lived the life we failed to live. Praise God. He was faithful. From that joyful obedience, that relationship with the Father, he was faithful every step of the way. Every step of the way. And he was faithful, not just to show us how to do it. He was faithful in our place. He lived for us. And then he... He died for us. And I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. Those ways where you go, man, I've blown it. Man, I got all, I got all caught up in that. I was, I was the Pharisee. I was looking down in condemnation on other people. Maybe you, you feel bad about that. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Christ died for that sin of condemnation and being a Pharisee. You ready to accept that? Christ died for Pharisees too? Yeah, he did. For Pharisees like us. So we come to the table to feed our hearts, to encourage ourselves in our faith. It's all about Christ. He's done it all for us. Let's pray and then we'll gather around the table.